It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast. On Tuesday, August 1st, Long Island serial killer suspect Rex Hewerman appeared in court for the first time since his arraignment. Hewerman currently faces three charges of first-degree murder, as well as three charges of second-degree murder, all to which he has pled not guilty. Suffolk County District Attorney Ray Tierney will serve as the lead prosecutor in the case against Hewerman. In a press conference following the hearing, District Attorney Tierney revealed the investigation has collected a large amount of evidence connecting Hewerman to the crimes, saying, We're talking about uh, 13 years worth of investigation, uh, so it is, I'm, I'm not going to speak for defense counsel, but suffice to say, it is a massive amount of material, and don't forget it's continuing uh, because the investigation is continuing. Hewerman is due back in court on September 27th for the next pretrial hearing. Joining me now with the latest on this case is attorney and retired NYPD inspector Paul Morrow. You know, looking at this case um, retrospectively, and we all know that hindsight is twenty twenty, right? But one of the things that concerns me, and that I, I had a question about all along as the case uh, broke that they had made the arrest, um, was when did they get the information regarding the description of the car and of Hureman? Um, if you recall in his press conference, D.A. Tierney, put out that they considered the car and the development of the inf- of the description of the car to be one of the two or three real key pieces of information that led to them finally being able to do, uh, get to a takedown here. And so the question for me became, well, then, when did you get that information, uh, uh, Suffolk County? When did, when did the investigators out there have that information? Because if they had it in 2010 when the bodies were discovered and they've essentially had it all along, that means that realistically everything that was done here by the task force could have been done 13 years ago. And when you consider that there is, according to Mr. Tierney, uh, FBI involvement in 2012, you have to say to yourself, well, why, again, wasn't all of this done back then? And again, I caveat that with hindsight being 2020, but one of the things that sort of concerned me is that when it did emerge that they did have that information in 2010, and that's when the witness came forward, there was comment in the newspaper from one of the investigators from back then who said, yeah, I don't know why they didn't share that information. They being whoever it was, that debriefed that witness. And what that tells me is there was dysfunction. One of the things you learn very quickly in police work and in investigations, especially in a complex investigation like something involving a serial killer, is that uniformity of information across the task force is crucial. You can't have silos. And when you do, it speaks to a lack of leadership. And so... I would argue that what has emerged here is that back then, the running of the homicide investigation and the investigation of what became known as the Long Island serial killer really does seem to be lacking the leadership and cohesion 
that the current task force had. And I don't have to speculate, the current task force operating with leadership and checking egos at the door, sharing information and moving forward uniformly had Hurman's name reportedly in something like a month. So you have to say to yourself, if the current guys could do it in a month, and by the way, I should mention, my understanding is that the real hero here is a female state trooper who did some real magic with the phones. But again, that's magic that was available, maybe not as easy, but it was available back then, especially with FBI involvement. So looking at it retrospectively, you have to say to yourself, something was awry back then, and why did it work so well this time? And you contrast that with, for example, you know, the Annie Lay murder um, at Yale, where because of that cohesiveness, because of the the second round that you just described, checking egos at the door, seamless communication and sharing of evidence and data amongst all of the different jurisdictions that took part, that led to identifying and nabbing her perp um, within a week. And that is so disheartening as the public to find that, again, in this case, within a month, then they have Horman's name and they had every piece of information available back then. And that's what cold case revival, cold case resurrection really is, right? It's it's someone painstakingly going over what they have already with a fine tooth comb. Now, if there's additional evidence that is inserted, that's a different thing, right? All of a sudden DNA, all of a sudden something introduced that changes the game. But oftentimes it's simply looking over with renewed eyes what had been missed or ignored or to your point, not shared prior. Uh, yes, exactly. And, you know, sometimes you do develop new capabilities. My gut tells me, and according to D.A. Tierney, he's actually said that new techniques involving uh, phone exploitation were employed. I have no doubt about that. But I do know what was available at the time. And the idea here, and actually, uh, I should I want to give a shout out to an excellent interview that was done on America's Newsroom with D.A. Tierney because they elicited some really inf interesting information. That is uh, Dana and Bill Hemmer and Dana Perino. In talking to D.A. Tierney, they developed the information that an FBI agent, they asked about this phone break, and he, they uh, learned that the investigators in 2012, an FBI agent who was working on the case, had gone out and, quote unquote, mapped the cell zones where the uh, investigators knew the phone belonging to Melissa Bartholomew, okay, one the, the unfortunately the first victim that was uh, discovered in Gilgo, um, they had mapped the zones where her phone had been used by the perp to call and taunt the families. So that tells me you had FBI in, uh, involvement back then in 2012. And according to what I've heard and read, and I've heard a few things, you know, in the ether, um, the methodology that they use to really, really simplify it. And it's it, they put out a lot of information in that bail application, I should say. That's a real roadmap to the case. But what this state trooper did was she went back and she looked at that mapping. Um, Tierney called it a database in his press conference, but really it's just a, a, a repository of all of this phone data that they held. And the basic presumption was when he made those calls using Melissa Bartholomew's phone, and the burner phones, which they had identified, they have those numbers, there was likely going to be a third number that would be visible beside those numbers active in the same cell zone at the same time. And so if they looked at the six or seven calls that they had to work with, 
Okay, identify Bartholomew's phone. Identify the burner phone that was used. Okay, now we have those two phones in the same area. What third phone always appears in the same cell zone at the same time as those phones? And they found that uniformity is, okay, this number here, this third number, is always there when those calls are made using those phones. They run that number, comes back to Rex Yerman, and then from there, it was a slam dunk. So, and you know, uh, Emily, another perhaps more simplistic way that this could have uh, been investigated on the electronic side is to just look at Craigslist. One of the commonalities among all of the uh, victims that we, we call the Gilgo Four, they were all advertising on Craigslist, an internet forum. And um, a number of them have come across state lines, which by the way, would have given the FBI federal jurisdiction. I don't know if they, why they didn't just take the case since they reportedly wanted in on it so much, but that's neither here nor there. But just uh, in in terms of technique, you could have gone in and just gotten a search warrant to dump the Craigslist server. And the four girls were all advertising in the New York area of the Craigslist forum. And if you just had dumped the ads that the four women had put out, and just looked for the internet protocol, the IP address, the unique identifier. In those days, you had unique identifiers for each computer. They weren't dynamic as they are now. They changed because there's so many computers. Back then, you would have gotten, with a little bit of subpoena work, I used to do it, you would have gotten the IP address that was common to all four women's ads. What computer hit all four women? And you would have got probably more than one person. But then you look at all four of them. And ultimately, according to the reporting, you would have likely gotten Rex Hureman's home computer that he was using to access the uh, Craigslist ads, and you would have been off and running. I don't know if that was done and if not, why, because that really seems to me that, you know, you didn't have the cloaking technology and stuff as available as it is now. I really would argue that that would have been a very fertile area of inquiry and would have gotten you to a name. And the question, though, Paul, is did that technology exist in 2011? Did it exist in 2012? If it did not, I can tell you that, and I was in the mix on a lot of this stuff, uh, the, not this case, but I mean, like it, it, these sorts of investigations, if it were not, the FBI was capable of developing it. Um, Suffolk County is a, you know, the relatively large agency. It's not NYPD with 50,000 employees, et cetera, but they're big enough and they're well-funded. I would posit that with a little bit of judicious pressure or spending, if they didn't have what they needed, you write the software in order to find it. You know, any MIT kid could take the data points that I just described and somehow or other conjure up a piece of software that goes out and finds that third number. Um, I, I can tell you that it, it almost certainly did exist, however, that there would have been ways you know, to do that. Um, and I just think that it, it, it speaks to some sort of a bureaucratic breakdown. I don't like criticizing retrospectively the investigators on a thing like this. I'm sure the investigators were, you know, I, I know for a fact that some of them, it just ate them alive, not being able to, to solve this. I'm not casting aspersions on them. What I am questioning, though, is the organization of the effort. 
And as I said, I pin it to the fact that one of the guys who was working on the case and who clearly wanted to solve it never heard the information that you and I just discussed. And the idea that in 2010, you had a witness that said it was this unusual looking car with an ornament and it looked like this. And that allows you to identify, ah, okay, it's an avalanche. What color was it? It was green. Okay, green avalanche. What was the guy like that was driving it? He was an ogre. Okay, now you're looking for a big guy driving a green avalanche in the area of where Amberlin Costello, who the witness had seen Hurman with, uh, that where she went missing. And uh, that would have been in and around Massapequa. How many ogres driving green avalanches, which was a new car at the time, are going to be living in the Massapequa area? You're going to come up with a list of you know single digits without question. And then you show them to the to the witness. Is this him? Is this him? Is it this is him? Okay, thank you. Now you got a name. You got a guy. I don't understand why that was not done. Um, and that would have been a very simple way to go about this, even without all of this phone technology that we're discussing. Mm. You know, I have to admit, not making light of this at all, but when you mentioned the excellent interview on America's Newsroom, I thought you were talking about you and I, who who gave a joint interview the other day. And I was like, why, yes, Paul, we did do an excellent job. We did do an excellent job. <laughs> I, 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 I agree. <laughs> um, so finishing up here, let's talk about the second bucket that you discussed, which was whether or not Horman is responsible for the remaining bodies, some yet to be identified. This, I think you just employ basic sort of Boolean logic here. You don't, you don't have to be an arch, uh, arch investigator. One of two things is going on. Either he did them all or somebody else is operating as a serial killer or a series of people are operating as killers and using that same block to block area to dump the bodies. Why am I skeptical? All right, there's 11 bodies out there, some of which are only partial. One of them I, I feel you can take off the table. I know that there's a couple of schools of thought on it, but Shannon Gilbert, at the end of the day, I come out with a sh with the Suffolk County sh uh, investigators uh, end up, which is that she is an accidental. Mm. So that leaves you with 10. Four of them almost certainly go to Hurman under the evidence that we've seen. He's innocent until proven guilty. We get that, but nonetheless, he's charged. And the fourth one, I think they're going to get there on the MO is almost identical. All right, that leaves you with six. That's straight. I've been out there now. I've been out to the house. I went out on the water side. I should mention I have this thing up on um, Fox News with uh, myself and uh, Mike Ruiz from Fox Digital going out on a boat, exploring the area from the bay side. And then, um, you know, I've driven the area. Here's the salient point. It is a very it's like a 30 mile stretch of straight highway that's really lonely, desolate with beach on one side and a little bit of shrubs. And on the other side, that is the bay side heavy vegetation, which is where the bodies were found. If you are a killer and you're dumping bodies out there, you essentially have 20, 30 miles of area to choose from where you could do your dirty deed. And to posit that somehow by happenstance, there is something about this couple of block area that is so compelling that different and disparate killers decided to use it to dump bodies in some instances from what i understand not even buried all right the bodies may have been exposed you know there's a few different uh, reporting lines on that um i just can't buy that it's just way too serendipitous and i feel like that argues that he probably did them all with the exception exception of shannon gilbert which i should point out was she was found over seven miles away she's the odd person out so let's get it down to the 10 
I feel he almost certainly did them all. The argument against that is it breaks uniformity with his type of victim that he prefers. But you and I have spoken about this in that serial killers tastes evolve. And if you look at the searches that he was doing on his Google, you see that, well, some of these things do dovetail with the Google searches he was doing because he apparently was also a pedophile. And so the fact that a four-year-old toddler was found out there, uh, a male potential sex worker, unidentified Asian male, um, those things do track to his Google searches. And I'm thinking that he did them all. Unfortunately, we may never know. It's an argument for the death penalty. If we had the death penalty in this case, that would be the one bargaining chip we would have to say, look, let us know about everything here and you can do life in prison. And it's almost, almost an argument to take the case federal. But that would be a bureaucratic battle of Olympian proportions. And I don't think that's going to happen. We're going to take a quick break. More from our guest after this. Fox News Radio On Demand on the Fox News app. Download the app and just click listen. When you swipe left, you can listen to your favorite Fox News talk shows live. Swipe right for the latest Fox News Radio newscasts on demand. Fox News Radio on the Fox News app. Download it today. Paul, based on the questions that we have at this moment, let alone the upcoming ones that will likely naturally arise, do you foresee an investigation into this one? There are different ways for federal bodies like the DOJ to sort of audit different departments and also to audit individual investigations. And at this point, do you feel that it warrants that or at least warrants even raising that question? I don't think it likely does. It's a very different department from what it was. And I go back to the leadership. You know, they had a guy out there who uh, was uh, in a leadership position and various leadership positions in um, the Suffolk PD. And um, he ultimately ends up getting arrested. Um, he uh, has been, it's widely reported, did a battle with the FBI repeatedly. Um, not only did he get arrested, but so did a former DA, a guy named Spoda, who got arrested out there um, and who uh, I believe is still imprisoned. My point is this, the feds have already put their finger on this thing relative to some of the leadership out in Suffolk. And very clearly, it's a very different department because, look, they came in and I want to give kudos to Rodney Harrison, former chief of department NYPD. Um, you know, obviously, I, I worked with him a bit. Um, Rodney and I uh, actually studied for the captain's test side by side. He went out there and he's the one who stuck his neck out here. I know Tierney, you know, and I'm not taking anything away from the DA's office. They used the grand jury for secrecy. They used it very well. They wrote hundreds of subpoenas and search warrants, more power to them. But Rodney's the one who stuck his neck out when he got out there. And he said he had the press conference and he said, I'm forming a task force. We're going to take a fresh look at this thing. You don't hear much about Rodney now, but Rodney's the guy who risked it, who there's video of him walking the scene saying, I think this thing is solvable. We're going to take a hard look. And he got it done, man. He had a lot of help, as we all know, but um, more power to him. And I think that needs to be recognized. So, no, I think it's a new day out there. I doubt that there's much to be gained by looking retrospectively. What I do think, though, is that it's a lesson to be learned. The leadership matters. you got to hurt all of these cats. As I said, keep the egos at the door and make sure everybody is sharing because I bet that there are investigators right now retired walking around from Suffolk saying, boy, if I had had that piece of information back then, if I had known that then, I would have rolled this case up. And there's no indications that Rex Herman killed anybody subsequent to the discovery of the Gilgo bodies, we hope. But uh, under what we know now, it doesn't seem to be the case. But, you know, God forbid he kept active after they could have stopped him. That's a tough thing to live with. 
so much that we've covered. Paul, thank you as always for your expertise, your insight, and we will look forward to staying with you and continuing to get that insight as this case develops and as the public learns more about the fate of not only Horman and it's winding its way through the judicial system, but um, potentially if there are additional charges that may come. So thank you as always, Paul, and we will absolutely be talking to you soon here on the Fox True Crime Podcast. Emily, anytime. To hear more stories like this, you can listen to our past episodes on the Fox True Crime Podcast. Go to foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts to listen and subscribe. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. If you have a story or topic you want to hear on the show, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at truecrimepodcast at fox.com. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.